The concept of the green economy is nothing new. But what do we actually have to do right now in order to build that green economy of the future? Last episode, we explored what it means to be a good ancestor right now to ensure the future is built best for all. And today we're diving straight into the meat of the green economy, energy. Hello, welcome to episode two of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a science writer, podcaster and researcher, and I'm obsessed with how the world works. In Looking Glass, we want to examine the details of how the world works and what can make it better. Challenging conversations about our society, exploring ideas and innovations across disciplines to create a blueprint for a future world. For most countries, the UK included, decarbonising the energy sector is essential to get anywhere close to meeting the greenhouse emission targets set by the Paris Agreement. But to know how to make that switch, we have to understand how much energy we'll need, where it's going, and how and when it's being used. And to understand that, we have to understand how people, be that the public, corporations or policymakers, view energy, how their habits will change, and what we can do to make sure it's at the forefront of their behaviour. My guests for this episode are Professor Alice Larkin and Dr Madeline Morris. Professor Alice Larkin is a Professor of Climate Science and Energy Policy at the University of Manchester, where she is also the head of the School of Engineering. She's also part of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research, where her research focuses have included energy system decarbonisation and carbon budgets, and more recently, international aviation and shipping policy. Dr. Madeline Morris is a postdoctoral research associate based at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment and a member of the Energy Revolution Research Consortium. Her research interests include the transition to smart and local energy and the policy and regulation that surrounds it. Maddie kicked us off by defining what we mean when we talk about energy demand and how that might differ from the idea of energy usage. Perhaps when we talk about demand, we're, we're talking about when people are using energy. So If we talk about consumption, we might use numbers that are how much people use, perhaps in a given year. But it's also really important to understand when people are using energy because we it's not the same throughout the day. Obviously, throughout uh, the night, we have a very low level. It jumps up in the morning when people start to wake up, levels out a little bit, and then we get this pretty significant spike, well, a hump, I guess, between sort of four and seven or eight in the evening when everybody, well, in normal times, comes home from work, turns on the telly, turns on the um, kettle, starts to cook dinner. And so we need to really understand when people are using energy to make sure that we have a system that can kind of deal with that inconsistency. And that's particularly important as we start to move to more renewable and inherently variable sources of um, energy generation. Explain that a little bit more, because this whole idea of that being perhaps a little bit of a hurdle for renewables versus traditional or fossil forms of of energy. What's the difference? Why is it that we have to pay attention to these to these demand humps, as you call them? So at the moment, the way the energy system has been built, it's based on really large carbon-based fossil fuel power stations. They're situated quite far. We don't really take a look at them. But what happens at the moment is the supply of energy has to follow the demand. So the more we use energy across the country, the more we have to sort of turn up those power stations. And then again, when we don't use so much, we have to ask them to turn down. And we can do that with um, things like gas and 
uh, more historically coal. But it's not really, it's not possible with things like wind and solar. We can't decide when, to the same extent, when solar and wind are going to be um, generating strongly. So we need to find smarter ways of dealing with the, the, the variability there. And part of that might be about being more efficient and part of it might be flipping that supply and demand relationship so that actually we're having more of a system where demand is maybe following supply. So by that, I mean, there might be ways of incentivizing people to to use energy to turn on some appliances at home, like your washing machine, when it's really sunny or when it's really windy or when other people aren't really using it. And so there's lots of different ways that we need to be able to deal with that. Let's talk a little bit then about um, who it is that's actually uh, using energy or where it's being used and maybe mapping that system. We've obviously talked a little bit about um, residential here, so people coming home from work and turning the kettles on. But as we know, that's not the the only uh, type of person or institution or whatever that's using energy. Um, sometimes we perhaps maybe focus a little bit too much on the, on the individual or perhaps not. So, Maddie, I'm going to stick with you once more. Um Tell us a little bit about who who it is that's using energy. What sectors are we talking about when we talk about energy usage? How do we sort of map it and which ones do we really need to be focusing on? They might actually be two slightly different questions about which sectors use the most energy and which ones we need to focus on. Because the power sector, so electricity, has decarbonised quite well over the last couple of decades Um, But it's kind of what's known as an easy to reach sector. And the emissions from that sector have come down quite dramatically. Sectors like transport and sectors like heat really haven't changed in the last few decades. Um, And that's a massive problem because we still have, I think it's about a third of our emissions come from the heat sector or the building sector. Let's say uh, let's park that bit on heat because I want to come back to that and and what we have to really be who we need to be talking to and what sort of things we need to be asking for. But Alice, I want to bring you in here because I know that transport is obviously a big area of your uh, research focus, and that was one of the other ones that Maddie mentioned as being a um, a place where we still need a lot of change. Obviously, aviation in particular has been something that you've looked at, and it's something that of course has changed over the last year. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of those, I guess. Um, switches in, the, in our behaviour and how that's maybe changed how the sector um, has has been using energy and whether that's something we need to pay attention to moving forward in terms of how we actually attack it. Aviation is one of those um, one of those areas that, that people get very animated about when you want to talk about energy consumption and, and because I think over the years I've kind of come to the conclusion that it, it's um, it's very much in the in the consciousness. You know, when people think about something that they very much look forward to positively, it's off, you know a holiday, a break, um, and flying is often for for some people is is could be the the kind of the means to to go and enjoy that that nice thing, that luxury thing, that thing that you're looking forward to. Um, but it's the, one of the most carbon intensive things that we do as individuals, probably the most. Um, it is also important to remember that it's a it's a minority of people that fly a lot, um, so it's a very kind of um, uh, unevenly distributed use of, of of an activity that's very carbon intensive. Um, so often people think about the annual holiday, but we're also talking about flights for for business. It might be kind of um, weekend trips, um, seeing friends and family, and so on. So there's lots of different reasons for why people might use air travel, but typically most people in the world basically don't fly. So you know it t- tends to be kind of uh, one of those activities that is more the preserve of the wealthy in wealthy nations, essentially. 
And when I started working on this long, long time ago now, you kind of quite quickly, as a, as a physicist, when you come at this problem, you look at it from a quantitative point of view, looking for the kind of technical solutions as to how to decarbonize the sector, what might be available. You come to the conclusion pretty quickly is that there isn't a lot in the timeframes that we were talking about the decarbonization being needed. There really wasn't a lot on offer in terms of technology solutions that there was available to, say, the electricity system, uh, as, as Maddie's already been talking about. Um, and so then you turn to demand and it's like about how how do you stop the rapid growth? How do you um, actually flatten that out? How do you actually reduce the demand for aviation? You know, is that feasible? And that's where you get into the controversy because people just do not want to hear that actually flying is a bad thing and that they need to change how they do things and what they do. And again, back to this point about how it's very unevenly distributed. If you think about it, you know, the audiences that you typically might be talking to when you're an academic in academic conferences will be people who fly. So you're talking to people who use aviation quite a lot. Um, the question is, you know, how much how much could we change the way in which we do things in a way that leads to a reduction in emissions? How much can we embrace some of the changes that we've we've made this year? Which of the ones are we going to return to? Which are the ones are we going to keep actually seeing the benefit of? You know, one of the things that, that I've heard is that one of the advantages, for example, when you look at business flying, is that the, the value of virtual communication is some people who were previously unable to participate in, say, a big scientific conference are able to do so because they can immediately just join into the Zoom meeting. Now, I'm not saying that, that that's going to be the case for every, everyone and in every circumstance, but certainly it's made people challenge the way in which we do things, the way we've normalized flying as being a kind of reasonable thing to do very frequently for things like academic conferences. That's one of the things that obviously has not, not been happening as a result of COVID. And we really need to ask ourselves these difficult questions because at the end of the day, the time frame, you know, Maddie was talking about time. Time is so important in relation to this big climate change debate um, and, and the challenge of actually reducing emissions in line with the kinds of goals that are set out in the Paris Climate Agreement. And, and it, isn't, it isn't a scenario where we can wait decades for the technology to, to fix this aircraft problem, which that would be lovely if it did. We don't have that time because the emissions accumulate and, and that's the problem. So where there are things where we need to, to reduce demand and that can have an impact on emissions, then we need to start thinking about, well, can we actually do things differently? Are there things that we can learn from, from this last year? With this, you bring up a really interesting point about, I guess, people traveling or flying specifically for things like academic conferences or business meetings and so on and so forth. Uh, and then also people who are traveling to visit friends and family or go on holiday. Do you have the, the sort of split in terms of, you know, is it more people who are going on holiday that have a bigger impact or is it people that are doing things for business? Because, you know, I could almost hear somebody sitting and going, well, surely if you really take a step back and think about what's important to the human race, <laughs> maybe it's important for us to be happy and visit friends and family. And if that's not as big of an impact versus, say, business meetings that we can feasibly do on Zoom and academic conferences that we can feasibly do elsewhere, why can't we just make a rule that says you can go on holiday, but you can't go and do business when you can do a call? Yeah, I mean, this is it's a really interesting discussion. This. So business travel um, is actually, it's not the highest proportion of emissions. Um, and it will depend on the country as to what this proportion is. The figures that, that I recall for the UK, typically around 12 to 15% of, uh, of flying activity and emissions associated with business rather than leisure. That, but the thing is that there's actually quite a blurred boundary as well. You know, sort of leisure kind of incorporates an awful lot of activities and that might include education, for example. Um 
And and I just think, you know, some colleagues of mine did some really nice work previously in the in the Tyndall Centre looking at the kinds of flying that people did. They would worked with frequent flyer focus groups. Um, and trying to kind of tease out well, where is there some room for maneuver in terms of policy? What are people most protective about, as you were just saying, you know, about the things that really make people happy or the things that maybe are a little bit more discretionary, should we call it that? And again, bearing in mind that we are not talking about everybody here. We're talking about a minority of population if we're talking about frequent flying. Um but the things that people are most precious about, I mean, it's not too surprising, you know, visiting friends and family, incredibly precious to people. And an annual holiday was the other thing that, that was really um, considered incredibly important. But we were also talking to people who were flying for a hen party or, or a weekend shopping trip or a sports tournament, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's, there's quite a lot of flying activity that goes on that, yes, probably makes you happy in some way and, and is a nice thing to do. But we also have to think about the things that we do have an impact on other people around the world. You know, there there isn't a kind of like, I can do this and it's not going to have an effect somewhere else. And this is the big challenge. And I think it's really hard for us to to get our heads around. And and we, as human beings, we probably don't want to because it's quite unpleasant to think about that the actions that I I take and the emissions that I release as a result of my activity are going to increase climate impacts and there is somebody who is much poorer than myself in a poorer part of the world who doesn't have the infrastructure the health systems the wherewithal you know the the support network when there's a big extreme weather event or drought or whatever it might be so being impacted by climate change right now and we have to connect those things we have to think about the the, the cause and effect maddie you mentioned um heating earlier on. Um, give us a little bit of a, a, a view or a map of what you're talking about there when you talk about, um, I guess, energy usage with heating, what types of heating, where? The majority of buildings, I think residential buildings, um, are heated with gas. I think it's something like 85% of buildings are connected to the gas network. Gas is obviously a fossil fuel and what a lot of people don't realise is that when they turn their heating on, if it's a boiler, they are there is CO2 coming out as a result of that. So that's quite a localised form of, of emissions. We're obviously going to have to get rid of those carbon gas boilers or fossil gas boilers. There is a massive question mark about what we move to and the extent to which other technologies are going to come into play. So there are a few options. Um, they're kind of split into two camps. One is electrification of heating, kind of like we're seeing in the transport sector. We're kind of doing the same thing, but we're just switching to um, electric vehicles. And then in the other camp is hydrogen gas, which at the time of burning, it doesn't release any carbon emissions. And so it's kind of considered a bit of a, a clean fuel. The reason it's still quite difficult is that neither of those is kind of a ready technology to, to roll out at the scale and at the pace that we need it. Um, and another of the issues is that there's quite a bit of fighting within the sector about which one is going to, to take over. And government has a role to play here in deciding, make, taking a big strategic decision about where, which route we go down or whether we adopt both routes. So let's let's build on this point, I guess, of um, control, which I think is also something you're touching on here around what is it that we as individuals can control um, feasibly, but also through desire, right? Um, and, and I think those are slightly different things, which also makes this this conversation um, sometimes quite difficult. Where, particularly if we're talking about things like business travel, or let's you know, let's go back to heat, but Maddie mentioning. Um, 
you don't always get a say in whether or not somebody goes and flies for a business conference or whether or not, say, you're renting from a landlord, whether your landlord has a gas boiler in in a property, you can't necessarily change that. So it's sometimes quite easy, but also it's true um, to step back and go, what can I actually do? And then feel that force of, oh, I feel like I'm already getting squeezed and I'm now getting told I can't do X, Y, and Z. So Maddie, I wonder if you could bring us in a little bit on that point around um, how do we sort of talk about these things or I don't want to say engage the public seems so frilly, but how do we, how do we talk about these topics with this sense of control brought in and incentives and all that sort when realistically each individual only has a certain amount of control and desire that they can really play with? It's a huge topic that and engagement and incorporating public engagement into the the policy making process is something that I think needs to be improved upon because it seems like now it's almost an afterthought. It's kind of we decide what the policy is and then maybe we'll try to um, make sure the public's okay with it. Whereas actually a much better way of making decisions that are quite robust and you know will land pretty well is to actually ask the public, what do you want? What do you need? What are your priorities here? And then trying to figure out how you make sure that we're not being completely unfair on certain people and leaving people behind in this, because that is a massive risk at the moment. And so there's, there's definitely ways of doing that that aren't the norm at the moment. And we saw um, recently the the Climate Assembly, which is a way of involving ordinary people, you and I, um, in, in sort of our, our usual selves, making decisions based on, on evidence that has been presented to them by experts. And what happened in that was, I think there was about 110 roughly people from across the UK who were invited to take part in this process, this assembly process, and they were chosen to be representative of the UK in terms of um, demographics and backgrounds. And the recommendations that they made or or the decisions that that they came to were very similar to the decisions that experts and 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 scientists have been have been suggesting for quite a long time in terms of things like what kind of transport we move to how we how we decarbonize heating where we need to um completely make changes to our homes and what that tells us is that um the public aren't against these things inherently but that if you don't involve them in the process and if you don't allow them to understand the reasons why you're coming to these decisions it can be really unpleasant for them to feel like they're having something done to them rather than for them. But also, not just from a negative point of view, not just, you know, if we don't do this, absolute doom and gloom. I think I'm more interested in in getting across the message that actually we don't have a perfect world at the moment. A lot of people are already suffering in the UK um, as a result of climate change. And so there's there's so many benefits that can come from this and they're often known as co-benefits so maybe if the goal is carbon reductions but the way we go about it if we do that right we can actually improve people's lives a lot and I think if you were to sort of flip the conversation and and centre the messaging around that kind of angle I think you get people much more on board and enthusiastic about doing this 
Alice, I want to bring you in on this point as well, because I think this, I mean, as, as Maddie said, it is a really big question and it's not one that has a, a simple answer or even a, a, an answer we're probably going to be close to, but rather this, I suppose, multifaceted approach um, that's going to differ across many different people, sectors, countries, even local areas. Um, what's your take on, on this uh, question around engagement with the public, bringing people into these conversations uh, versus slash as well as creating policies that just say we just have to do this because we know that you want it, the evidence says it's there and we just have to kind of get it done. I think the important thing is this recognition that we as a as a human system are also an interconnected system. So policymakers are, are human beings too and people who vote uh, are human beings and the decisions that we make, I mean, in, in a country like the UK, where we have a very positive opportunity to kind of participate in politics and, and like Maddie was describing in, in exercises such as the Citizens' Assembly, you know, many places will not have that opportunity to have a voice. Um, there's a really important role for us in, in taking advantage of the fact that we have a voice because there's a kind of, you know, I often get maybe criticism is, is too strong a word, but I kind of, the conversation around, well, what point, what's the point if you don't fly? What's the point of that? That's only a small amount of emissions. What does it matter what any individual does? Um, and, uh, and again, I think it's this point that we're all visible. Some people are more visible than others. We all have friends, we have different networks, we have connections with people. And I think it's about, you know, where, where is it that you could have some influence? And where is it that if we kind of increase the, the engagement and discussion and debate around matters of climate change, I sometimes think of it like, um, you know, like these experiments you do when you're a kid with uh, iron filings and a magnet, and you try and get all the iron filings to kind of like line up and go in the same direction. And I sometimes feel like that's kind of how this human system is kind of working. And like, we, there's a big problem with climate change more and more people kind of like are becoming aligned and understanding that even if they don't understand the detail of it that there is a big issue here that we need to do things differently that that we maybe need to accept that there are certain things that we won't be available to us anymore you know our, our system for kind of getting to work might change or whatever it might be and that alignment at some point that is sort of gains momentum if you like and 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 though you know hopefully um, I mean, I worry that not in time, but hopefully at least that there will be um, a big, big shift in in relation to uh, the kinds of policies that, and the kinds of things that people will think that is just the right thing to do for, for climate change reasons. Let's let's build a little bit then on business responsibility because we've touched on it a little bit, but I'd like I'd, I'd like to go a little bit deeper because I... When we, we talk about individuals, we talk about people wanting to make the right decision or maybe having pressure or so on and so forth. But I think there's a perception and I think it's, I'm sure it's true in many ways that businesses don't really necessarily operate like that. They have maybe different incentives than individuals, um, obviously profit being one, um, but reputation being another and, and, and many, many more. So how do we, um, how do we encourage or enable um, or make <laughs> businesses take that responsibility to make those changes. Um, is it a different kind of engagement or perhaps maybe the word isn't engagement, but rather regulation um, than it is for individuals? Alice, let's, let's start with you. Well, I mean, there's a role for all sorts of different economic instruments when it when it comes to this issue, and and regulation has an important role to play. I mean, in the UK, we have the the, the Climate Change Act, we have legal ob obligations, and then it's about how how you distribute that and how you make sure that organisations are are in line with what we're legally obliged to do. I mean, one of the things that we know about in in engineering is often if you if you tighten the constraints and you set a regulation, actually the in innovative engineers uh, become very creative and come up with 
with with new things and innovative solutions. And actually, I don't think we have been, um, I guess, strong enough, brave enough with some of the kinds of regulations that we could have over the past couple of decades put into place across things like, I don't know, white goods, so things like fridges and, and washing machines. I think the other, you know, another aspect of pressure on organisations again, comes from the people who buy things or do things or choose to to shop or support a particular organisation. There was some nice work I remember a colleague did on, on labelling. And the assumption was that labels impact on and influence the consumer, whereas actually they have a really uh, much greater influence on the kind of the supply chain and on the organization because it's back to the, the point you made about reputation. It's like um, if, if people start kind of like voting with their feet essentially because because they see a label and they think, well, that organization is, is not as good as this one for, for the things that I care about, then that can, that can send this kind of push up the supply chain to organizations to do things differently. The added sort of layer that's really important is that there's stability in the decisions that are being made and the messages that are coming from or the signals that are coming from from government because businesses are not able to change they plan on on a long a long um long terms much longer i think than a lot of politicians maybe do um and so if they don't have clarity of what's going to happen they're not going to be able to make the changes that will actually completely completely alter their business plans for the next decades we're not just talking a few years here and so a good example of that is um building energy efficiency so so how much heat is leaked from our homes in the UK is really quite dire. We have a very, very old and um, pretty poor building stock. But we've had very little policy stability over the last particularly 10 years. Um, and we've had a few failures from before that. And so when houses are being built, they're not being built as efficient as they could be because the regulations aren't in there. And so why would businesses do something that they don't really have any clarity on? Because they might just have to go back and redo something and so we're at the point now where we're still building homes which we're going to have to retrofit before 2050 which to me just seems just bizarre it's just completely inefficient but there have been policies that should have been put in place to to make our, uh, homes more efficient but government pulled out last minute after having the support from businesses so that it's a really difficult environment in which um they're having to make their decisions here You've both touched on, um, I guess, this the difficulty with individual choice, particularly because some individuals perhaps don't have that choice. Perhaps people living in fuel poverty, for instance, and when you're talking about things like changing um, homes or or whatever, again, something that you know choices that don't touch individuals' lives. Um, and I appreciate we've spent the best part of this uh, chat talking about how it's complicated and there's no one simple answer and and all these sorts of things, which is true. Um, however, I do want to ask you more because I would love to hear, I guess, I don't want to say optimism, but that there are some answers to some of this. What are some of the policy changes that you would like to see that does start making the field both more balanced for those people um, that, you know, we don't want to leave people out, but at the same time can uh, move things forward in a timely fashion um, that, you know, really not just incentivizes, but makes change um, at the speed that we need it. Alice, I'm going to pick on you first for some of your policy changes you'd like to enact. I mean, if I just focus for a minute on on aviation and shipping. So 
they're two sectors where because their their emissions are released in international waters and international airspace so they become really tricky when it comes to setting policy um you know nations don't want to be the ones setting policy for a sector that actually transcends transcends borders if you like but then what you're left with are two sectors that have very limited um, sort of policy direction, if you like, uh, and certainly in line with the kind of things that we need in the Paris Agreement. So for me, for them, um, I would I would like to see, I mean, you know, the shipping, the shipping industry could set the equivalent of a kind of nationally determined contribution, which is the way in which countries kind of have set themselves targets that is in line with Paris. So if it's an international maritime organisation is a a sort of uh, sector-wide body that governs shipping within the United Nations Framework Convention, it should be the organisation that is setting the stringent targets and then developing the, the policies to get in there. Um, if it was setting something that was much, much more stringent than, than current, I mean, it has a, a 50% cut in 2050. I mean, it's nowhere near enough. Um, so se- first of all, it's about setting setting a quantitative uh, target that is based on the science, that is that is that takes into account the, the limited carbon budget, the, the latest understanding of, w- of what that really means. And setting that scale, that's not to say that it's necessarily, well, it's not easy, certainly not easy to get to. Um, and and it might, well, many people will say, well, that's just not realistic. It's, you know, we can't do it in the time frame, and so on and so forth. But this is what I mean about, you know, when you set yourself an ambitious goal, you see incredible learning, incredible innovation and creativity. Um, and then, you know, within that, you then need the, the policies. It might be regulations, there might be economic instruments and other things like that, that then are all sort of aligned and pushing in the right direction once you've got that, that kind of framework. Maddie, let's turn to you for your policy ideas. I think I'm going to cheat slightly here and I'm not going to give you actual policy ideas because I actually think there's not one or two policies that are going to sort this. And I actually think that what we need to address is the policy making process. I think we need to improve that. I think we need... um, public engagement and public like views from the get-go from from the very sort of seeds of the idea of what this might be become and I think we need to ask non-experts how these policies are going to impact on their lives and actually ask them for ideas because I actually think that if we get a much more um, diverse group of people around the table to make policies we'll get much better much fairer policies and that also goes for for academia academia is not a very diverse place and actually the type of person who's making a decision is not going to be the person who is the worst off when that decision is put into place so I, I actually think that first of all we need to get better about who we're putting in the in the decision making hot seat My final question then builds quite nicely on from that point, Maddie. We've talked in this discussion about individuals, we've talked about businesses, we've talked about policymakers. What we haven't really talked about is us, the academics, the people who are doing the research and and are the the so-called experts. If everyone could see what I was doing, I was putting my little inverted commas there because expert is a variable term. What can individuals like us do and people listening to the show, obviously people associated with the IOP, scientists, academics of all flavours. Um, we're, we're, we're talking increasingly, um, more generally, but we have been doing also specifically in this series about the importance of people in the science field being able to understand stuff that's outside of science and engage 
with um, society as a whole and being able to make those those links between science and society as opposed to kind of perhaps being quite siloed in in our thinking. So how do we make sure that we are also presenting rounded, open ideas that make sense for the many um, as opposed to something that maybe only fits our, our really particular way of thinking, Alice? Well, I mean, I think Maddie just put it so well when she was talking about getting that diversity of views into kind of building the policies and and thinking about who's going to, how it affects different people. I mean, I, I'm in a position where, you know, I sit in committees and meetings where we're trying to kind of work out policies and make decisions and the, the things that you come up with, I mean, I'm not relating necessarily to climate change, but of course they impact on people differently. And it's one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when you get a position like mine that actually, you know, you, what you thought was a great idea suddenly like bombs with everyone because it's like actually you didn't bother to talk to people and to understand what people's concerns might be and um, yeah, and how it was going to directly impact on people. Um, and we're doing some of this uh, discussion at the moment around climate change policies. In, I mean, I'm sure this is happening in all universities about, you know, what can we learn from this situation we've just had? What can we do differently? And I think this is, a, it's about reaching out. It's about listening. It's about kind of trying to work out how, how to challenge. I think it is really healthy and important to challenge people's, you know, norms. You know, I've always done it like this and, you know, surely you, you can't change this now. Um, of course, that that's kind of, well, if you think about, if I think about when I did my PhD, it wasn't common that people would go to a conference, an international conference by air every year, for example. You might have gone to one during your PhD study and that, you know, was like a really exciting thing you look forward to. Um, and, and the kind of whole culture around the, how we do things is really shifted. Like we do things in a, in a higher carbon way than we used to. And so to say, oh, well, you know, we, we can't challenge, we can't do things differently. I think we just need to have kind of like honest, open discussions about, okay, well, what is our possibility space for how much we could change and what are the kind of things that we could do differently and how far could we go and how far could we go at this point? And maybe in five years time, maybe we could push a bit more. I think it's nice that you've brought in both sides there, both the the behaviour of the individual academic, shall we say, and, and what it is that we do in the process of doing research, but also in terms of the how do we actually inform our views that ultimately um, come out in the research that, that we put out into the world. Um, Maddie, what would be your sort of uh, top tip? Seems uh, like a, a diminishing way to put it, but what would you say that we should be we should all be thinking about from the the people who are the experts and the ones people are turning to for for ideas. Yes. I agree with absolutely everything that Alice said. Um, I think um, communication, engagement, outreach, all slightly different things, but all incredibly important, um, is something that some people in academia and some institutions are really good at and they're really passionate about. But as a... <sighs> as a sector academia it's it's not really held in high enough esteem i think um and so i think we need to get a lot better at that the british science association um do surveys that gather public attitudes to science and it shows consistently that that, that scientists are very well trusted the vast majority of the public holds the opinions of 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 scientists in high esteem and they do trust them but they also, the majority of them feel that we don't communicate well enough. And some of them even think that we are quite secretive in terms of our work. So there's this perception that we're kind of um, a bit of a, cl a quite a closed bunch. And that's, I think, quite a common perception. And 
that might not always be true, but even if it's perceived to be true, that's a big issue that we need to tackle as academics. And so I think I would like, I would like this to be baked in to the academic process more and, and not just be seen as a, a sort of frilly thing on the side, which is unfortunately how some, a lot of people still see it. Um, and I and there are people shouting from the rooftops about the benefits of communication and engagement. Um, and I hope it gets through on a, on a sort of more systemic level. And, and, and by communication and engagement, I don't mean one way communication. I, I really do mean, as Alice was saying, listening to people. And when I've done science communication in the past and outreach, I've always been absolutely amazed at the kind of conversations that I've had with people that have just made me completely rethink things. And it does change how I do science. And I do believe that it's made me a better scientist. I think that's a lovely point to end on, Maddie, and particularly because going back to, I guess, the, the central point of what we've been saying, if we really want to be making moves, good moves, quick moves when it comes to tackling climate change and, you know, coming up with solutions that make sense for all, it doesn't make sense to only go, okay, what's the tech fix here? What's the what's the engineering um, innovation that we can come up with? It is really about understanding all of those interconnections um, throughout all different areas of society, really. And instead of going, that's really complicated, we can't do that, instead embracing that actually that's just how we should be producing knowledge and that is how we should just be trying to understand how to move things forward. At the end of the day, it's the intersection of science and society. Alice, Maddie, thank you so much for coming and joining us to chat all things energy demand. It's been um, amazing to get your expertise um, and of course some of your tasty opinions too. Thank you for coming and joining us on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My guests for this episode were Dr. Madeline Morris and Professor Alice Larkin. If that's whetted your appetite for more energy talk, then you're in luck. Next time, we're going to be moving on to explore just how we're going to supply energy in a way that helps us meet both energy targets and the demand we've spoken about today. Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Rosie Stouffer. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. The researcher is Fatuma Kera. Original music and sound mix by Alex Portfelix. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Jose Luis Ramirez Mendiola. Later this year, the IOP will be launching a series of conversations co-produced with local communities that will explore the role of physics in our everyday lives, discussing the implications for all of us in creating an equitable green future. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. 